I think what we're trying to do is make sure that kids A, feel a lot of love, B, have a lot of opportunity to figure things out on their own, and number three, develop as much grit as possible. It's actually not about teaching a lot of content knowledge. It's more about like develop grit and capabilities with which they can learn later on. Welcome to Startup Dad, the podcast where we dive deep into the lives of dads who are also leaders in the world of startups and business. I'm your host, Adam Fishman, and in this episode, I sat down with the CEO of Grinder, George Arison. In this conversation, George gave me an inside look into the surrogacy process from finding an egg donor to the birth of his twins, or twiblings. He opened up about the difficulties gay men can face, like the lack of health insurance coverage and legal complexities around becoming a parent. We also talked about his experience growing up in the Soviet Union and immigrating to the U.S. as a teenager, and talked extensively about his family's love of books, his parenting philosophies, and the values that are central to raising his young kids. This episode was a deep dive into the experiences of a gay father, how to prepare your kids to understand different family structures, and handle questions they might get about having two fathers. It was a privilege to talk to George and hear about the growing acceptance and supportive communities that he's experienced. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I would like to welcome George Arison to the Startup Dad podcast today. George, it is wonderful to reconnect with you after almost a decade, we decided. Thanks for being here. My guess is is sometime in 2014, at best 2015, just based on which office for my last company I met you in. So it has been a long time. It was small. Whatever office space it was, it was early days at Shift. It was very, very, very small, 100%. Yeah. Well, George, I want to jump right in. It's a pleasure having you here today. You have such an amazing background. And so I thought we would start really quickly there. You and I first met when you were the founder and CEO of Shift. And you've done quite a few things since then. So I was hoping maybe you could just give us a little bit of overview about your background and kind of what you're up to today. Sure. So I'm originally from Georgia, the country. I was very fortunate to move to the US when I was 14 to go to prep school. I was the first Soviet kid to kind of be easily allowed to leave and, and come to school here. So I've been in the US pretty much ever since. Didn't ever think I was going to start tech companies or, or whatnot, but here I am. Along the way, I started a company called Taxi Magic, and then went to Google for a bit, and then started another company called Shift, which I spent nine years building, and we went public in 2020. So it was a, a great, great journey with all the challenges and ups and downs of uh, a low-margin business that you want to be a better-margin business. But you know, I didn't think I was going to do an operational business, but then it became a very operational-heavy business. That, yeah. that obviously, uh, you know, I learned a lot of things along the way. In 2022, I passed on shift to my successor and then was recruited to become CEO Grinder, which is what I'm doing right now. Obviously, unlike Shift, which actually needs introductions, Grinder, I've discovered everyone knows that's never <laughs> a topic where you have to explain what Grinder does. Yes. Um, but you know, Grinder's gone through a series of ownership changes. The last ownership group that came in frankly really saved the company because it had been under Chinese ownership previously really hollowed out, no investments in technology, no investments mm-hmm. in the product. So even though the user base was continuing to grow dramatically, the product itself was not improving much. And so the new ownership really kind of went to solve and address all those things. So significant growth in revenue. And then the company went public in, in 2022. And so I came in about 
a month before IPO and have been uh, here now for nearly um, 10 months. Wow. Wow. What a ride. Turnaround story. That's pretty awesome. So you mentioned you're from Georgia, the country, which I think is a good caveat because Georgia, the state, very different from Georgia, yep, the country. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about life growing up. So you came here when you were 14, but I mean, you know, you probably brought a ton of first generation immigrant values and stuff to the US. So what was life like growing up in Georgia? And then what was it like growing up in the United States? Sure. So I came to the US on my own. So I spent a lot of time in, in dorm and, and there's an American family that kind of helped make it possible for me to come here. And so they would host me on holidays and weekends and whatnot. But Georgia is a you know, obviously very different today than even when I was there because it was a Soviet country back then. But family has always been really important in Georgia. And so that's, you know, one really big thing. You know, people are very close to each other. Most people tend to either live in one, you know, home, apartment building, et cetera, where it's like multi-generational, or even if not, you still are very interconnected as a family, which is obviously a huge difference with, with the U.S. Uh, like we moved down to Palo Alto right before my kids were born, partly because my husband's sister lives really close to where we live. His parents live really close to where we live. And then we brought my dad here as well. But we kind of recreated this like very close family together. But even still, like the frequency with which we see our family here is way less than the frequency with which you'd see your family in Georgia, where like if you don't see them for 24 hours, it's like a very unusual kind of phenomenon. You know, my dad was convinced that the Soviet Union was going to fall apart, which was a pretty, you know, aggressive point of view to have back in 1980 or 82, 83. And so she was very focused on, hey, my kids need to learn English. My kids need to learn how to leave this country when it's time to do that. And so I had English tutors from the time I was uh, very young. The first language I ever wrote in was English. And this whole idea that like getting out of here is a really critical thing was really ingrained into my head as something that I needed to kind of do and accomplish. And obviously, you know, he turned out to be very right. He would spend a ton of time telling me like, when you are 17, XYZ is going to be happening. He was off by about three years. So like the stuff wow. that he would describe actually did all happen, but it happened like when I was, you know, 13, 14, not 17, 18. So including like wow. you know, civil war and people not having food and you know having to like really fight for survival. So I was raised with a lot of privilege because my grandfather was a fairly senior official in the communist system. And so we had a lot more than a lot of people did. But then also I was raised with this idea that like, hey, you got to get out and you got to work really hard. And so, yes, I came here very much with this ingrained view that, you know, you work really hard and that's what makes you be successful. And frankly, I've learned that's actually true. You work really hard and uh, that's what makes you really successful. So hard work and yeah. perseverance are very much like quintessential values that I really believe in. And then doing like impossible things is something I really believe in pretty strongly as well. And so I've been very lucky in the US over the last nearly, you know, it's been actually 30 years, I guess, yeah, 31 years. Wow. It's been a really amazing journey here. Wow. And you mentioned that you met your husband and then moved your father here and you have your family now. You have the honor of being the first gay person who I've interviewed on the pod. So I'm excited for that and excited to have you on. But tell me about your partner. How did the two of you meet? And then tell me a bit about your kids. Totally. So, well, first, let me just say, I've always wanted kids. Again, coming from Georgia, culture, et cetera, is always a really big deal, frankly. The idea of like, oh, I might not be able to have kids was always a huge problem with me coming out, like coming to mm. terms of being gay. And this whole children topic was always really tough. My co-founder in my previous company, well, I'll remain nameless for privacy purposes, is also gay and he had children, you know, in 
kind of a, a decade and a half ago, like very early days of gay surrogacy. And so once yeah. he did that, then I was like much more convinced that, you know, you, you actually could do that. And so I had a very strong view that like, by the time I'm 40, I'm either, you know, in a relationship and on track to be married or, you know, I'm going to go to kids on my own, the, the same way that my co-founder yeah. in, in that company had done. And so, you know, I was kind of on the verge of like starting to stop going on dates and start to like plan on my own in 2015 when I met my husband. And, you know, it's a little bit of like, you stop looking and then it kind of turns up for you. And for me, yeah. dates were always complicated because I would like literally start talking to my children like right away. Day <laughs> one, because it was like, what's the point of having this conversation if we're not going to be on the same page and kind of where this goes, uh, which, you know, with all due respect to my many gay you know, acquaintances in the world, most of them don't want to have children, right? It's like a, an unusual yeah. kind of thing to have, although I think it's much different now with the younger generation of gay men, but at least for my generation, it was not always the thing. My husband, Robert, you know, was on the same page. With me on having children, he was not as like obsessed with the idea of having kids. I mean, I was, but like he was very open to having kids, assuming that he had a partner who also wanted to do that. And so we kind of hit it off on that perspective very early. And then, you know, I think we have a lot of values that align in terms of what matters. Uh, he is not an immigrant, but his parents are. And so from that mm. perspective, in terms of what matters in life, very similar point of view as well. And that like, you know, you do a lot to set up a really good life for your children, et cetera, et cetera. And so we met each other in 2015. I was early days of shift. And so he lived the entire shift journey vicariously. And then yeah. in 2017, took charge of kind of planning our kids' journey. And I tend to call that Robert's startup because the whole like difficulty of having children is about as hard as, uh, as starting a company, if not harder. I had a couple parents on the show who have referred to this, their startup as their third kid yeah. or something like that. For me, that. it was my so. first kid and I have two kids yeah. later. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And so your kids are almost four years old now or, or yeah. just about to turn four? Yeah. So we okay. did what's called twibblings where you have two surrogates at the same time. And we were very lucky because we transferred embryos on the same day and they both worked. So we have about mm. a 50% chance that it would happen. And they were born nine days apart. So our son's birthday is coming up in like four or five days here. And then our daughter is born, you know, nine days after. That's amazing. So you and Robert, your partner, were aligned from the jump, right? Probably from that first date that kids was a thing that you wanted. Yep. But what was that conversation like when you were sort of both ready and it was time to do it? Oh, so he actually pushed it more. That there's a group called Gay Men Having Babies Through Surrogacy. It's a Facebook group. And they also host in-person conferences three or four times a year. And like a lot of, you know, surrogacy companies, agencies, IVF clinics, et cetera, they all come to advertise themselves at these events. And so they were having one in San Francisco, like January, February, 2017. And so I was like, I'm going to go to like, you know, learn about this. And I was actually not ready at that point to like, let's go pull the trigger because, you know, ship was going through a pretty rough journey. I'm like, hey, let's figure this out first and then talk about this. But he's like, well, it's going to take forever. Like, you don't have a full cognition of how long it's going to take to do this. And so he went and met all the different agencies and whatever, and, and it was very helpful because you kind of can evaluate, you know, who's the right partner for you and, and how it should work. And then, you know, he really drove it from there because, again, I was like a little resistant in 2017 to kind of move quickly on some of these things. But of course, I'm yeah. really happy that he did because in hindsight, it took way longer than you, you think it would, right? So like January 2017, our kids were born in September 2017. 19, right? So it's like two and a half years plus wow. to get to children. And our journey was actually like fairly simple. We didn't have a lot of hiccups uh, along the way. Wow. Uh, a lot of other people have a lot more hiccups uh, along the way. So you kind of 
you know, have to look for a, an egg donor, which is in our case, at least it was probably the most challenging piece because we really wanted an egg donor who was very academically inclined in a strong way. And the whole process isn't set up to do that. Like the entire process is for what does the egg donor look, look like? Not like what is the oh. academic background, you know, intellectual background of the egg donor. And for us, like looks were very secondary. The other yeah. factors were a lot more important. And so, you know, initially you go through all these agencies and you look for it and you get kind of depressed because you're like, wow, I can't find who I need. Then we finally were recommended an agency that doesn't let you into the list of people they have until you pay some money. So it's like a more oh. selective list of donors. And so there we were able to find a donor that we loved. And, and the donor has, again, being very careful in what I'm saying, but has some level of post-Soviet background uh, like I do. So, mm-hmm. you know, her family is originally from the Soviet Union. She was um, born in the Soviet Union. So that was interesting because like there was going to be a little bit of more of a connection there. And um, she had also done uh, this before. And so she was a proven egg donor, which was really helpful. So we signed her up um, and like, you know, you had to move really fast and thank God we did work because like within a day of signing her up, two other people expressed an interest in working wow. with her as well. So she was like a very in-demand donor. So that worked out really well. And then you concurrently like apply to look for surrogates, which is actually the much more time-consuming process, but less stressful because eventually you can get that. Um, I think when we really took us nine months, which, you know, with the two surrogates at the same time, reasonable amount of time for during the pandemic, the, the periods increased dramatically. Like I've had friends wait for mm. over two years and then I think now it's getting better. But it's, you know, obviously, you know, there is some money exchanged for service, sure. but like the amount of work that these women do kind of for you, if you can even call it work, right, is so significant. Like no amount of money can really, you know, pay for what you're getting from them. And there's yeah. a definite like selflessness to this. And, you know, you discover some people like really like being pregnant and they tell you, so yeah. I, I actually like being pregnant. Like that's not what you expect most of the time. But <laughs> some people really do enjoy it. And so like there's a little kind of, I think, like get pregnant and surrogates as a contrasting circles uh, on that front. And so yeah. we, you know, we had two wonderful surrogates who, you know, did an amazing job for us and are obviously super grateful for what they're able to, uh, to give us because you can't really put a price uh, kind of on that. And so, you know, we found these two surrogates in kind of July, August 2019. And then there's some work with the clinic to get ready. Our embryos were already ready. So we, we went, had gone through a donation process and creating embryos, et cetera. And we have a, a lot of embryos actually still frozen if we wanted more kids. And so then transfers happened in, in early December. And then we were actually in Thailand for Christmas vacation when we found out that, you know, both of them had worked and kind of everything else was history after that. Wow. What a process too. And so you mentioned two and a half years and that's at the lower end of the spectrum of what it can take yeah. people. That is impressive. The resolve that it takes to kind of go through that whole process. There are now groups that are trying to help you do it more easily, but back then there weren't as many. I mean, there's now a couple of startups that are trying this, but even still, it's like, it's uh, just, you know, very manual and very individual process, right? Like, you know, you meet a surrogate and okay, she likes you and you don't like her for whatever reason, or you don't, you, you like her, but she doesn't like you. Right. And I think, you know, a lot of surrogates don't want to actually be service to gay parents. They only want to be service to straight parents. Of course, like that's, you know, limits mm-hmm. selection kind of even more. And there's geography, like, okay, where do you want the surrogate to be? Like for us, it was important for them to be within, you know, reasonable closeness to us. Turns out actually it didn't really matter. We thought that was a really big deal, but yeah. turned out it actually wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But then you also consider like, what state do you want to do this in? 
California is an awesome state to do because you can do what's called a pre-birth order. So you can be declared to be the parent of the kid prior to the kid being even born. So when you show, oh, uh, when you show up at the, at the hospital, like it's very clear, you are the parent and then this is your kid, et cetera. Like it's very structured, which for us matter a lot, right? In a lot of other states, you do a post-birth order where like, yes, it's everybody decided, but a judge has to stamp paperwork after the baby is born, which like, you know, can give you a little bit of heebie-jeebies about like, are you actually the parent of the kid or not? Sure. Now, like, yes, one of the dads will be because he's biologically the parent as well, but, but what about the one that's not, et cetera. So California is a great state to do it in, but that also limits your choices, right? Et cetera. So, you know, it's a long process and very arduous, and it's also very costly because all of this is done kind of out of pocket expenses, right? So if you are a, you know, straight couple or, you know, a, a, a lesbian couple that's trying to have kids through with IVF involved, insurance will cover some parts of the cost, mm-hmm. assuming you have insurance that does that. But if you're a gay couple, even if you have insurance that covers IVF, you actually can't use it because you are not the recipient wow. uh, of the IVF. It's the surrogate uh, who's the recipient of the IVF. And then on to that, like medical expenses are generally tax deductible above a certain dollar amount for people. So if you are engaged in IVF and you're paying out of pocket, you can most likely deduct all that from your taxes. But if you're a gay couple, you can't because they're not regarded as your medical expenses. They are the surrogate's oh. medical expenses. And so wow. the cost on surrogacy is in, insanely high. And again, you know, I'm very fortunate. I've, I've had a, a very good career and, and, and we could afford to do this. But for a lot of people, it's a massive constraint on and being able to do it because it's so expensive. This is very top of mind because I just yeah. spent an hour this morning with our insurance broker talking about how can we potentially get this included in Grindr's health insurance because I think if oh. one company should like figure this out, it's Grindr, given that you know we're in the business of creating yeah. love among gay and bi men. And so yeah. we, internally, we should like solve this and then hopefully we can push other people to solve this as well. So. Wow. I, you know, I would have never known the whole health insurance angle here. I knew it's hard enough for straight parents or like you mentioned, lesbian couples, but I had no idea the lack of coverage for gay men when it comes to just something as silly as like, well, it's the IVF isn't happening to you. So therefore we don't cover it, you know, or we can't let you deduct that from your taxes because it's not your body. Wow. That seems like bananas to me, but you probably used to... (laughs) To experiencing these kinds of wild, yes. you know, discriminations. It's, it's in been life. an interesting. So I actually been very lucky. Like I've lived in very yeah. tolerant places. I went to prep school in Maine, college in Vermont, lived in DC for a long time, and then Bay Area. These are like the you know, among yeah, the most you're pretty good, most tolerant places in the world. You, and so you hit the bingo card. <laughs> Vermont, like first state to do civil unions. Maine was one of the first states to allow gay marriage. Obviously, DC has a huge gay population, and you know, San Francisco kind of speaks for itself. And so. I've not had this yeah. challenges. Now I actually face them a lot more, right? Like now that I'm a writer, I encounter stuff. I'm like, seriously, like this kind of stuff still actually happens because, you know, I've yeah. been so selective in where I've lived. It's never been a thing, but like, you know, we had a bank and I never name names, but you know, who declined to work with us on a pure commercial relationship purposes because they were concerned about reputational risk of grinder. And I'm like, are you kind of like kidding me? We are yeah. by far the largest and there's nothing even close to it, cohort of this community in the world. And so you wow. can, you know, declare all you want about awesome things related to your LGBTQ, you know, leadership, blah, blah, blah. But like when it comes to actually doing business, you're not willing to make a choice 
that's a pretty basic choice, right? I had another bank yeah. that is an investment bank where I have a very long-term relationship with them. They are basically not willing to support us as an investment bank. Now, they would claim it has nothing to do with us being a gay company, but it has everything to do with us being a gay company based on kind of sure. where, where things have landed. And so flip side is, you know, there have been banks that have been bent over backwards to be very supportive and have very much put their money where the mouth is. So that's like, I don't want to say everything's all bad, but it's definitely the, the opposite. And sure. like, you know, I was at an event with Jamie Diamond and I walked up to him and I'm like, you know, like, it's really amazing how well you guys have um, behaved in, in this regard. And, and I really appreciate it. And he like was very direct, like totally not allowed to discriminate and then give you some examples of how he feels about it, which is like awesome. But sadly, yeah, it still happens more often than it should. That's really interesting. I was going to ask you about potential blockers to success with surrogacy, but I think you covered a lot of them, actually. Especially interesting, and I sort of figured that this would probably be the case, that there are surrogates who get to a place and are like, I don't want to work with a gay yep. couple on this. And then that must be a, you know, a pretty tough situation when that when The that flip happens. side is also true. There's some people who actually really want to work with gay couples because oh, interesting. You know, it's yeah. a little bit easier, right? Like in some ways, because you're not like second guessing kind of what's going on. And I think for straight couples who are having kids through surrogacy, you know, most likely the, the mom went through a lot of uh, along the way to try to get pregnant her, herself. Yeah. That didn't work. And there's a little bit of like emotional, like, my God, like what happened, like, et cetera. And so there's definitely some people who like actually prefer to work with gay couples versus, versus not. But it's a yeah. very emotional and a very personal kind of, you know, re yeah. relationship. And it's, look, you know, these people do an amazing thing for you because it's like, a year of their life, basically, you know, with yeah. a significant amount of discomfort while you're pregnant. Yeah. So you've got these almost four-year-old twiblings. Yep. I love that term, by the way. What's the earliest memory that you have of becoming a father? Well, I kind of you becoming a father when like we knew that they were pregnant. So the memory that was like sure. lying in bed in Thailand at, at a resort and Robert got a text message from one of the surrogates because she had just done a at-home test and he was still very faint, but clearly there was a pregnancy. And then like, you know, waking mm. me up and telling me, oh, wow, you know, we think we're pregnant. And then us like texting the other server, hey, maybe like, could you try to do a test to see what's going on? <laughs> kind of, <laughs> kind of thing. So, and then like hearing from her and like, it was super exciting and, and it was really great. So that's the end of the, the first memory. Now, when our son was being born, we had to go to Reading because that's where the surrogate was. And we drove so fast that we were stopped and Robert had never been stopped by policeman in his life <laughs> so like he's yeah. like well we go and and i think this policeman like eventually understood what's going on and like let us go <laughs> because we're like oh we have a baby yeah. coming and like what are you talking about but eventually it kind of worked <laughs> out i actually was negotiating a term sheet yeah. while my son was being born in the room <laughs> oh god <laughs> so there's also that like because i'm a total workaholic and uh, we were working on something and and like a lot of back and forth with the other side on what should be the terms and like you know, it's a long process, right? So I was kind of, and I was not yeah. really needed until the baby was born. So I would come in and come out and come in and come out and on calls and sending emails on, on this term sheet. And then unfortunately, the natural birth didn't work. And so they kind of had to actually rush really quickly to do a cesarean. And so, you know, we were waiting there to kind of see it happen. And then boom, suddenly had to go. And Robert went in because he's a doctor. And so I think they kind of uh, let him be closer. And so he grabbed mm -hmm. our son first when he came out from surgery and then, you know, grabbing him. And like, you know, for me, that was like a pretty miraculous thing. And, you know, experiencing all that was pretty awesome. But yeah, I probably never forget what it was like holding him when he was born. Uh, when our daughter was born, 
uh, that was all uh, natural. And Robert actually got to take her out because, again, he's a doctor. So oh, he was wow. in the room and then the, the OBGYN knew that he's a doctor. And so she's like, hey, do you want to grab him? And so he, you know, he grabbed Amelia's head and took her out. And so that was definitely crazy because you wow. see like the whole thing. And, and we have this picture of like Robert's face in a very weird expression while he's grabbing the kid <laughs> out. And I probably yeah. won't forget that either, but it was pretty awesome. And it was a really fantastic thing. Yeah. Wow. You, yeah. Usually fathers, uh, if they're lucky, don't get to or have yeah. to deliver their own kids. But in, in this case, what an honor. Totally. And they also like, you, you were not like really kind of, I mean, you're there to support the surrogate, but like they usually have their own person supporting them. So like you're kind of able to focus right. a little more on the baby. Yeah. So, you know, you've always wanted to have kids and now you do. And I'm curious what some of the most sort of surprising things are that you've discovered after becoming a dad. Well, it's definitely a lot more work than I thought it would be, for, for sure. Uh-huh. I mean, we're very lucky because we have a lot of help. And, and so I kind of had this view that I like, it's going to not actually alter my life that much. And it's altered my life in a pretty significant way, especially the first like four years, I think, are much deeper. Like now we're kind of at the point where like, they yeah. can actually play themselves and you're not like having to like always watch them all the time. Mm-hmm. I think you obviously know that kids learn, right? But like for me, observing my kids, like learning and figuring things out is like a really remarkable thing, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like simple math problems or like, you know, uh, like when my son first figured out like one plus one was two and like, you know, like, like oh, there's one car and the second car, there's two cars. Like that was just like, on his face, it can just be like, you know, so I think that's been like really amazing to watch. Uh, and I don't think I had a full cognition of what that would be like to kind of observe. But yeah, I, I don't actually really know what I expected being a dad to be like. So I can say like, oh, hey, I expected to be this way. And then it's turned out to be um, the other way. I've definitely like loved it. And also there are some moments that I've like really, you know, uh, really hated. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it comes with the territory. Because they're a little like vultures too. Yeah. Always yeah, circling. Always, <laughs> one, you were like, like, yesterday I was eating a peach and Amelia's like, can I have it? And I'm like, can we go get you a new peach? She's like, no, I actually wanted my peach. And I'm like, really? It's <laughs> yeah, a very special like, peach because it's yours. <laughs> That's amazing. So at four, you know, at four years old or almost four years old, your kids haven't really fully experienced the world yet. But I'm curious this didn't happen to me, right, growing up. But I'm wondering if your kids have ever asked you about being gay or how you talk to them yeah. about that concept or if it's something you talk about a lot in the household. We do. No, so we have a theory that the earlier you do everything, the better because mm-hmm. it should just be totally normal for them so they are not then like surprised by some questions and whatnot. And so on a lot of stuff that's like unusual. I don't mean it's in a bad way, but it is not the same as majority right. about our family. I tend, we tend to talk about that more and not just being gay and having kids and surrogacy, which we've talked to kids about all those things, but also like immigration, for example, mm. like, like, um, our kids know what a refugee is. Our kids know what an immigrant is. Um, we've read, you know, dozens of books about immigration and, and refugees because like, we think it's important for them to know kind of where they come from and, and what it means. So that's stuff we've always talked to them about a lot on the, you know, being gay part of like, we very basic levels where like, hey, there's many different kinds of families. There's some families that have two dads. There's some families that have two moms. Most families that have a mom and a dad, there are some families that only have one parent. And I think kids really get that. And there's never, you know, 
real questions kind of about that. As much as my Bay Area is so welcoming of gay people, obviously, the number of gay parents is actually not that high. Mm. So that's definitely like not ideal because it'd be nicer if they had more, you know, around them that they could like experience. So that's something we need to kind of work on a, a little bit. There's one other gay couple in the school, but it's in a different, in their nursery school, but it's in a different class. And so at one event, they met them, which I think was really good. On the surrogacy point, like we, you know, their books that kind of explain what IVF is and what surrogacy is, they're very basic, like very basic books. And so we've used those books to kind of, you know, read to them. And so, yeah, and I like our daughter and our son will like say things like, oh, was that when I was in the surrogate's tummy or et cetera? Because we got married while the surrogates were already pregnant. Uh-huh. So Robert brought the ultrasound pictures to the wedding and there's a wedding picture uh-huh. of him holding them up. And so it's hanging in our living room. And so sometimes the kids will be like, you know, was that when I was in the surrogate's tummy? But like, they know, you know, they know what an egg donor is. They know what a surrogate yeah. is. They, I mean, I think they understand what IDF is, but they know what IDF is sure. too. So that's been like really, I think really good, you know, prep them for like when someone's going to say like, where's your mom? And like, you know, if you ask our kids, where's your mom? They'll say, I don't have a mom. I have two dads and yep. or left side, like I have a dad and a, a daughter. And that's been, you know, generally really good. And, and frankly, they've not faced so far any issues on any of these things. I think eventually like the challenging ones are going to be when they ask about the egg donor. Yeah. Because I think when you're talking to them so early, they're eventually going to be like, well, who is the egg donor? Right. Like, and I meet her and we you know ours was an open donation, but with this meant, meant to be no contact. So like that's going to be a challenging kind of period, I think, yeah. at, at some point. But I think we're going to have to tell her like, hey, this is your egg donor. Like here are the pictures of the egg donor, but like we can't contact her until, you know, you can try to contact her when you're a team, but not until then. But I think, you know, we are very lucky in where we live. But they generally not face any issues with that. But they're, I think, very aware of, you know, our situation and kind of what our family is like versus some of them. Certainly probably much more aware than other kids who are four years old, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. totally. But I think the reality also is like all the kids in their class are also way more aware yeah. than most kids because like we are there. Yeah. Right? Like, and so I think that's also um, really good. But kids have been really very well. I think there's a definite fascination uh, among other children with them because they're like so close, yeah. right? Like these two are like always together. So twins have a definite advantage yeah. in that way when they first start school. And so we're actually trying to like break them up a little yeah. bit now. Like the snack tables have been split up so they can have snacks separately. That's the first big milestone. Yeah. Separate yeah. the snack tables. So when we were prepping for this interview, one of the things that you mentioned is that you are a household of books. And that there's a ton oh, yeah, it's like of books. coming out of a, everywhere. Everywhere. Like it's like everywhere. And, and so you also mentioned, I was going to ask you, you know, what are some of the ones that are kind of most important to you? You said it's impossible to list them all. I believe that after I saw the list that you shared with me. And we'll yeah. link that in the show notes so that other people can follow along. But I'm curious what some of the maybe more impactful books are for you and your kids. Yeah. Well, there's like two buckets of things to talk about. Like there's authors that we really like or books that we really like that we read a lot. Like Julia Donaldson, who is a British author of the book called Ruffalo, but she actually has a huge collection of books. Mm-hmm. We really love her poetic kind of writing is really easy to read and, and it's been really awesome. So we've been reading her books since the babies were like, you know, since the kids were babies. We really love those. Grumpy Monkey is very popular in our household and all the books related to Grumpy Monkey. Yeah. I really like this book called Going Places, which is like, in effect, a book about entrepreneurship. Oh. It's a really cool book from that 
perspective. Rabbit Listen is a really a good book. I, it gets a little bit of challenged by you know some of the more crazy elements of our society because it's written without revealing the gender of the kid. Mm. But it's a very empathy happy focused book. So I really, from that point of view, read that. And then I wrote this little piece on Father's Day about like books that have been really helpful for us in terms of explaining our family mm. to our kids and like what's different about that. So I have a whole set of books on that, like and Tango Makes Three, which they constantly try to ban, which is kind of completely ridiculous because mm. it's a facts based book. Yeah. <laughs> like actually tell factual stuff, yeah. which is around two penguins who are both male, you know basically parenting an egg and then and ha- having a child in, in New York. It's a really good book. A Mr. Seahorse, we read to our kids a lot. It's a very famous book, but we liked it because it's all about dads taking care of the Yeah, that's the, the baby Eric Carl book, I think, right? Yeah, exactly. I've read, so we like, have that, that too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a very popular book. We really like it. The family book is a really good book about different types of families. And so like teaching our kids that, hey, this is our family, this is our family, like, that's been really good. The book I mentioned earlier about the surrogacy, it's, it's called Happy Together. Mm-hmm. Very simple. I mean, it's a self-published book. I like it's super great. And then uh, a book that I started to really like last year is called Harriet Gets Carried Away. Mm-hmm. And the reason I like that book was because it's totally like normal, like nothing unusual about the book as you read it. It's about this kid who, you know, really dons a penguin costume and ends up in Antarctica and then has to figure out how to get home, yeah. right? But then like you're reading the book and then on the, the second to last page, you know, she's greeted by her two dads. Mm. And it's like incredible normalization. We're like, okay, it's one thing to have books like that are specifically about, you know, two dads and whatever, and yeah. those are necessary too. But here was just like a kind of afterthought that like, oh yeah, she has two dads. Yeah. But the story's about something totally different. I think uh, was really great as well. So those are some of the books we really like from that perspective. And then the offers I mentioned are probably the ones I, we most enjoy otherwise. But I buy like probably 400 books a year because- we do one new book at least a day and we do like 10 books a, a, a day in terms of what we read at least. And so wow. books are like a really big part of our of our life. Has yeah. that always been something that's been important to you or is it something that's changed since you had kids? Well, I mean, education has always been really important to me because mm-hmm. everything I've achieved in life has been through education and, and I've been, you know, quite lucky. And so I have to kind of pay homage to what's made it possible. I actually don't read books myself much now. I don't really have much time. Sure. I do a lot of reading all day, but books for myself is not a thing. I also really like current events, politics, and news. Mm-hmm. And so if I have time to read, it's like most reading news and, and analytical pieces of, of that nature. But you know, I think educating our kids always been a thing. And for us, learning is not something you per se do just in school, right? And so I think reading to them from day one has been very important before day one. So we had an app with a device that you can buy where Sarah could put uh, these two microphones on her tummy and kids could listen. So we used that device and we would read to the kids all the time, even before they were born. Wow. Because the theory goes that they can get used to your voice. And so when they're, you know, when they're with you, when they're born, they're not as surprised. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we would read a lot of these books even before they were born. And then obviously once they were born, like that's been a constant thing. Huh? Yeah. That's amazing. So I wanted to turn the corner for a second and just ask you, and one of the things I talk about with a lot of people on here is how important partnership is when you have kids. Yeah. And obviously, you know, you have a partner of, of many years now, and it's really important to align on things when you have kids and be in lockstep. Yeah. But I'm curious if there's an element of parenting that you and Robert don't agree on. Where's something where you're at odds? So he mostly wins. So <laughs> our 
<laughs> join approach is whatever he kind of recommends because he has done a lot of thinking on kind of how to parent and he's mm. read and or listened to every primary kind of child, you know, psychologist and or, you know, education person out there. I am probably the Georgian parenting is not the style that we want, but unfortunately mm. I default to it nevertheless. Frequently, it's very much like do stuff for your kids, right? And like, and, and tell them a little bit of no when you need to, but you know, so very permissive, but a little bit too much yelling. I try not to do the yelling, but the permissiveness still kind of kicks in yeah. and then you like do stuff for them. And so that's like something I, I don't like, but it still happens because you inevitably default to what you were, you know, raised with uh, versus Robert's a lot more like, you know, let me explain to you why the things have to be this way. I'm not going to tell you no, I'm going to tell you let's do it in, in a different way. Hey, you know, if you need to build this Legos, you're going to build it yourself. You can ask me for help, but don't say I can't do it, right. uh, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, I think we are generally aligned. It's just that my natural instincts uh, fall in the direction that's not great. <laughs> and yeah. so then I have to, like, correct myself from that. But, you know, we are very aligned on what we want to do, broadly speaking. And, like, you know, a lot of our, I think what we're trying to do is make sure that kids, A, feel a lot of love, B, have a lot of opportunity to figure things out on their own, and number three, develop as much grit as possible. It's actually not about teaching a lot of content knowledge. It's more about like develop grit and capabilities with which they can learn later on. Whether my kids don't know how to write at four or not doesn't actually matter per se. It's whether they are developing natural skill set for how to get educated when they're more grown up. Yeah, I love that. I love that approach. Curious, we talked about this as it relates to surrogacy and some of the challenges that you experienced or that gay couples can experience during surrogacy. Have you, since your kids have been born, experienced any you know, obvious challenges as same-sex parents. I know in the Bay Area, we're very liberal here and yeah. we think everything is wonderful, but I'm sure that there's some things that are more difficult that I don't have an appreciation for. Yeah, we actually haven't faced a lot of challenges about gay parenting and we've been very lucky and very fortunate. Like, this is not meant to be like, oh, everyone has it this way. Yeah. You clearly don't. Like, we are just very fortunate in the environment that we are in. I mean, we live in Palo Alto. Like, this is not a a place where anyone would, would discriminate in, in any way. And, you know, schools have been really positive. All the parents that we meet are, are generally really positive. There was thinking in my head, I'm like, well, if I take this branded job, like, what will that mean? As far as like schools, et cetera, for kids. And Robert, you know, really asked a lot of questions about that. Surprisingly, it's been the opposite of what I think you would have expected. Like people have been like super supportive. It's awesome. And people I never expected to be supportive have been like, that's wow, great. that's like awesome that you're doing this. That's been really good. You know, I think some people might say, oh, you have to like provide explanations, which we have to do sometimes mm -hmm. about like, oh, how were the kids born? Who is like biological parent of who, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I don't actually view that as an inconvenience. It's just the reality of life. Like, it's yeah. totally reasonable for people to ask, like, you know, what are the relationships to the kids, et cetera. So I don't get offended by any means. Some of our parents, I think, find that like intrusive and whatever. I, I don't. I think mm -hmm. it's just a totally normal, natural thing for people to want to know, like how this all happened, because it's an unusual uh, story. And like, you know, great, I think it's actually better if they ask, because they're either like curious and want to learn and understand things that they might previously not have understood. So in that regard, it's been really good. Now, there have been things that like, we've not done because of COVID, our travel has been more limited. Sure. So I think like, that'll be as we travel more, that'll be interesting, because they're definitely you know, parts of the country that are not as easy. And sometimes, you know, you definitely hear reports like, hey, try to go through security. And there's all these questions around like, 
why are you with these two kids mm. if you're traveling alone and like your name's not on the birth certificate, et cetera, or whatever, like mm. that kind of stuff, like still, unfortunately, definitely happens. But I think, you know, as much as like, there's still a lot of work to do to get people's minds to change and, and whatnot in terms of gay rights and, and, and equality, what I experienced when like leading up to me having children, especially, was that a lot of people you wouldn't expect to be super supportive really are. So, for example, in 2018, you know, in 2019, I spent a lot of time on BD deals with other um, automotive sales companies when I was at Shift. So I had to travel a lot to like all these different parts of the country. And some of them are like very conservative parts of the country. Yeah. And, you know, I would not like, this is a very important part of my life. And so I would very directly say like, yeah, I'm having kids, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so people that you wouldn't expect in any way to be like, wow, that's awesome we're always like, wow, that's awesome. And are still like very supportive, you know, if they ever talk to me like about my children and whatnot. So that's a very positive thing where like, you know, where I thought there would be issues, actually, I have not been issues. That's really good. Now, you know, I think there's definitely stuff happening in certain states that's like really terrible. And, you know, I think it's pretty obvious what those things are. And like a bunch of books that I just mentioned to you, you couldn't actually read in Florida. And that, that, that's also nuts, right? And so I had like, I know somebody who has kids through surrogacy and during COVID, they had moved to Florida because it was safer outdoors, et cetera, mm. from uh, Northeast. And, you know, he chose to actually leave Florida recently because even though he himself might not be targeted per se, and the area he was in definitely wasn't targeting him in any way and, and his kids, the fact that like teachers still uncomfortable talking about these topics, et cetera, inevitably makes kids' lives a lot worse. Right? And that's like yeah. pretty disgusting and horrible. And the fact that he had upward his kids and moved them for no reason is really awful. And that's just like the more simple one of those versus like, you sure. know, hey, I want to make XYZ decisions about my kids. And we talk all the time that family should be allowed to make decisions and not the government, but except for like, you know, what kind of treatment should my kid have? Like that also doesn't make yeah. any sense, right? We can d debate about who is right and wrong as far as what treatment should happen, but like parents should have the decision and they should have the right to make a decision for their children, you know, in an almost universally 100% way, right? That's how it is and, and has always been. So that's a, like the real, I think there are definitely those issues. And so I've, you know, we've not faced that because we've not been in those areas, but I think in the future, I'm sure that'll come up. And I think the best thing you can do is just kind of prepare kids for that and, you know, have them understand what the world's like out there and, and then they can, you know, better deal with it. Like there's no point in hiding. Yeah. You know. That makes sense. One thing you mentioned throughout, and I didn't pause to ask you about this, is that your husband, Robert, is a doctor. Is he still a practicing doctor? He doesn't see patients anymore, but he has been doing public health for a long time and he still does something Great. Like that, but Great. part time. I was gonna ask then, you know, the follow up, because you mentioned kind of communicating with the schools and things like that. So in a lot of very like heteronormative relationships, you have kind of the default parent that gets the phone call when somebody bumps yep. their head or something like that. Unfortunately, it typically happens to be the mom in a lot yep. of these situations, even despite everyone's best intentions to maybe shift that. So who gets the phone call when one of your kids bumps their head at school? Is yeah, Robert gets the phone calls, but that's, <laughs> you know, part of A, because I'm a, you know, public company CEO and I work yep. a crazy uh, amount of time. I also don't answer my phone. Uh, frequently, oh. if uh, I don't know who the call is from. And then thirdly, I mean, he is a doctor. So it's like the yeah. more appropriate thing <laughs> that you get the phone call. No, I'm, look, I'm very lucky because I do think it's very hard. I'm not saying it's impossible, but people do do it. But it, I think it's very hard to have two 
high power job situations in a, in a family and be able to, to raise kids the way at least we'd want to raise kids, which is very active yeah. involvement in their lives. And the fact that Robert takes on a lot of this stuff makes it actually easier for me, you know, in a way that I don't have to prioritize something. So then I can prioritize things that really matter. So that I really appreciate the fact that he does a lot of the heavy lifting and the challenging work so that I can then be there for the more, you know, fun stuff. But that's also really yeah. critical for the kids uh, to have, you know, for their relationship with me. I've been very lucky with COVID, frankly, because in that sense, because the, look, I'm, you know, actively, I think we need to be back in the office in some way. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's really important, but the flexibility is also really nice. And I don't think these two things are necessarily mutually exclusive. You can be back in the office two or three days a week and have a reasonable amount of flexibility on the, on the other days. But for me, like, you know, I have made it a massive priority to go pick my kids up at school twice a week. And I go there for story time and I you know, sit there and I'm with them and then bring them home. But like, you know, if you want to get a parking spot at this place, you have to shop early. I can yeah. never do that. So what happens in our household is my husband takes the car, goes there early. I take an Uber to shop like right before story time starts. And then we drive back together. But that's what I mean by like how grateful I am for like the fact that he like takes an extra 45 minutes to do this one. And yeah. practice like one parent could just bring both kids home from school. Yeah. But it allows me to then be able to be there versus otherwise I wouldn't be able to do that's that. That's great. So the flexibility has been really good. And I do try to like, really make sure that I'm offline as much as possible, like yeah. 5.45 to 7.15 every day. Now that obviously time will move as kids grow older, but like there from like, hey, we start starting bath to do dinner to get them to bed is really, really critical. So that's been really, really good. Because otherwise it'd just be, I think it'd be very hard from the relationship with kids perspective. Yeah. So I have two more questions for you. And the first one is, what's a mistake that you've made as a father? I mean, I'd probably make one every hour on a regular basis. I think I probably don't do enough explanation to the kids on why certain things have to be a certain way or tell them no versus like, you know, get them to the no themselves. Uh, and I think that's something that's like, you know, frustrating, but I do it anyway. So, so yeah. that's probably the big, big one that I kind of get, you know, upset by myself about. Yeah. Okay. And my last question for you is in the prep for the show, you mentioned this balance of work and play and sort of conflating those two things. And you mentioned, and I was kind of confused by that. And you mentioned in your follow-up that it's an important topic for you and it's related to what they're learning at school or the philosophy that they're experiencing at school. So tell me more about this concept of play and work. Yeah. So, I mean, our kids go to Bing, which is a school at Stanford. And it's a really amazing nursery school. And they're very lucky as we tell them on a daily basis that they're there because it is like an incredible place. But, you know, Stanford's philosophy is learn through play, right? Like they don't teach anything formal, but you're learning an incredible amount every minute of the day you're there through play. And you then see how it works outside of it, right? Because they do that. They have a replica of that in, in our backyard and whatnot. But the way Stanford kind of tells you this to the parents, like play is the kids' work, right? Like that's what mm-hmm. they're doing. And, and our kids will sometimes actually tell you, like, can't right now, I'm working it. I'm like, you know, uh, building a Legos or, you know, building a yeah. sandcastle, whatever. So that's been a big wake up for me in terms of like how we want to educate our children, right? Because I think coming in, I'm like, oh yeah, tutors and this, tutors and that, like, get them into, you know, math class at four years old, et cetera. And like, I'm now like 180 degrees away from that. Like we're going to, you know, probably hold them back 
from when they start kindergarten, kind of give them even more time to be in this like completely unstructured um, setting and like, you know, they should learn completely at their own pace. And what I'm finding actually that they're learning at an insanely fast pace, even without having to be in this like any kind of structured environment. Like, like Amelia yeah. on her own decided about three months ago that she really wanted to learn how to write. And so she'll constantly come to you and be like, hey, how do you spell XYZ word? And then she'll like remember it and then knows wow. how to write it, even though we've never had any kind of formal instruction of, you know, what the letters are and, and whatever. It's picking them up on, on their own. And with twins, the way it usually works, like as soon as one kid does something, then the other kid wants to do it too. So there's a little yeah. bit of like one-upping of each other uh, going, going on. So, and that helps as well. But I think this like, you know, th- there's a lot of awesome things about the Bay Area, but too much structure and too much like pushing kids is a definite issue here. And so yeah. we've really found the Bing education to be like an antidote to that in, in a lot of ways. And at least has made me very much into a convert on what you should do. That's great. Thank you for explaining that to me. Okay, let's do this. Here's how rapid fire works. I ask you a question. You say the first thing that comes to mind as quickly as possible. No editing, no edited thoughts. Maybe we'll follow up if it's really funny. Are you ready, George? Yeah. Okay. Number one, what is the most indispensable parenting product that you have ever purchased? I would say Legos is, is that only uh, our kids love Legos. And so we do a lot of Legos building. <laughs> a lot of work. A lot yes, of work a lot building of work. Legos. <laughs> what about the opposite? What is the most useless parenting product you've ever purchased? Oh, I don't know. We don't buy a lot of stuff. Like it's very kind of okay. concrete. So most things we have were like either passed down or where we're told by experienced parents that like you need this. And generally it's been pretty accurate. That's good. Now. So you have a lot of books in your house. How many parenting books do you have in your house? We, we have an insane number of parenting books as well. And how many of those have you read cover to cover? None. Zero. Yep. <laughs> but it read... sounds like your husband's read a lot. Oh, yeah, he's read most of them, for sure. <laughs> okay. What has been your favorite age for your kids so far? Oh, favorite age. I think the early age was really awesome. Like the kind of first year was, was really good. Yeah. The, Last like eight, nine months has been awful. That was definitely the worst, but you know, the, yeah. the early days, but I think we're about to, like, everyone's been telling me four is when it all changes. It's totally different. And I'm feeling like it's actually true. Like the last three months, a lot of the things that have been very hard about that kind of like three and a quarter to nearly four period are going away. Okay. Well, I'll have to share the Matt Greenberg episode of this with you because he has a different take on the age four. Got it. So <laughs> I might in six months from now, I'm like, oh my God, four was awful. We'll check back in. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What about screen time? Good, bad, or are you indifferent about we, it? We uh, don't allow screen time. They get to watch number blocks and alpha blocks for uh, about 10 minutes a day. Yeah. I feel like I have to ask you this next question because you founded an online car reselling company. Do you have a point of view on minivans? Well, I think if you have more than two kids, 100% yeah, positive, right? We are fortunate, two kids, we can do with a regular car. No, but, but, you know, I can understand why you need all the space now, which I never understood before, <laughs> because yep. even like a three-day relocation is still a relocation <laughs> with the kids. Yeah, <laughs> got to find somewhere to put all those books. Yep. Books and just all this other stuff. <laughs> it's like too much. Yeah. Speaking of which, what is the most absurd thing that your kid has ever asked you to buy for them? So we went to Hawaii for July 4th week. 
and they really loved it. And they now regularly say, can we move to Hawaii? Can we move to Hawaii? And so at one point, one of them said, can we buy a new house in Hawaii? And we're like, well, okay, maybe a little bit too early to be making this demand and no realization of, you know, where money comes from, but it's okay. Yeah, that's a good one. What was the most difficult kids TV show that you've ever had to sit through? Coco Melon is just absolutely awful. I mean, I think any parent. I've heard you're not the yeah, first no, to I'm say this about it's Coco Melon. Awful. It's absolutely awful. So, and it's very addictive. Like somehow it's designed to addict them to it. So when uh-huh. we discovered Alpha Blocks and Number Blocks, which are like amazing shows, actually, they really do teach a lot of really good content. Getting off of Coco Melon, et cetera, was, was, was quite good. Have you ever had a traumatic experience assembling a children's toy or piece of furniture? So my husband does most of the furniture, fortunately, and he does almost okay. all the toys because uh, I just am very incompetent okay. when it comes uh, to that. So you're avoiding it. Yeah, yeah, to, 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 to not have a traumatic experience. Yes. <laughs> How many hours of sleep do you actually get with two almost four-year-olds? I end up sleeping somewhere between five and a half and six and a half hours. Um, I need to do more, but you know, if I don't do at least six, I tend to be very tired. Okay. And finally, how many times have you said, go ask your father to one of the kids this week? Well, I don't say go ask your father. I say go ask daddy, because I'm daughter and he's daddy, but uh, a a lot. Because whenever I like, you don't want to be the one who has to give a negative answer. I got to send over there. So it comes back to Robert, the enforcer of the rules. Yep. I love it. I love well, it. Well, he also knows better because, like, I don't actually know what all the rules are. So sometimes they get on. It's a great, it's a great point. George, last question for you. If somebody wants to kind of follow along on your journey, follow along what you're doing at Grinder, or just support you in any way, what's the best way for them to do that? You know, LinkedIn is probably the best. I don't, I don't do a lot of social media and I don't use Twitter almost at all, but LinkedIn, I do a lot of. So that's probably where I would send people. All right. I will make sure to direct people to your LinkedIn in the show notes. George, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been really great and an eye-opening conversation for me. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's conversation with George Arison. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, share, and leave me a review. It'll help other people find this podcast. Startup Dad is a Fishman AF production with editing support from Tommy Heron. You can stay up to date on all my other thoughts on growth, product, and parenting by subscribing to the Fishman AF newsletter at www.fishmanafnewsletter.com. Thanks for listening.